You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics Season 7, where we've been turning to Meister Eckhart. And I'm so excited to be here with Jim Finley and Matthew Fox today to talk about Meister Eckhart, his life and his influence on their teaching. So welcome, Jim. Good to be here. And a special welcome to you, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. So I wanted to start with a quote from Matthew's book uh, that's called Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times. And Matthew writes, It is a great privilege to be presenting Meister Eckhart. Eckhart is a man for our times, a mystic warrior for our age, and I am keen to see him better known and more deeply understood. And you and Jim seem to have that in common, and that's why we're excited to have you on the podcast today. But Matthew, can you share a little bit more about that quote and why you feel that way? Oh, sure. And it explains why I'm happy to be with you, because I'm glad that Jim and you have been uh, sharing Meister Eckhart all these weeks, and I've, I've listened in on some of the broadcasts. And I, Eckhart is one of the great spiritual geniuses of the West, no question about it. Because he was condemned by the church a week after he died, he was, um, what should I say, uh, ignored in theology. And I, for example, being a Dominican, which he was also, uh, in 14 years of training, never heard his name once. So, you know, when you get condemned, you know, the, you pay a price for it. But that doesn't mean others did not pick up on him. Carl Jung says that Eckhart gave him the key to the unconscious. Ernst Bach, a Marxist philosopher, says that Eckhart was a deep influence on Karl Marx because he was so involved in social justice issues of his day. And he developed a philosophy and a mysticism that did not tur- turn his back on society. But, and that's where the prophetic, the warrior, dimension of Eckhart really comes through, you see. And that's why he got condemned, because he was supporting the women's movement of his day, the Beguines, which the Pope at that time, John XXII, condemned 17 different times, which suggests it wasn't working too well. And by the time the Pope died, uh, there were over 250,000 Beguines living just in Northern Europe alone. So, um, and Eckhart supported the peasants, too. In fact, he preached to them in their language, which at that time was was the early German dialect. And Eckhart actually helped to invent the German language today, but he was the first intellectual to uh, preach and, there, and therefore write in, in German, as you know. And that's why to this day, the German language is as mystical as it is. Mm-hmm. So Eckhart has so much to give us today. He was also a feminist. He just was. It's clear. He talks about God as mother. and. Because Julian Norwich picks up on him and develops that theme even further. But um, he had this marvelous balance of the of the intuitive and creative uh, along with the the theological. And um so I just think he's, you know, I, I use the phrase mystic warrior or mystic prophet, mm-hmm. and others use the term contemplation and action. 
their parallel terms. Eckhart's influence has been vast, but now that we can bring him with Jim's help and others more into the mainstream, I think we all can deepen our vocations as mystics and prophets or contemplative activists. Yeah, just to echo all of that, how significant he is. And uh, and also that he plays such an important part then in the turning to the mystic series, really. He's just one of these great mysticism of the masters, and he's, he's among those masters. And on both the depth mystical dimension and how it incarnates itself in daily life, like what the implications are when we put it into action. Yeah. Beautiful. So Matthew, you mentioned you were a Dominican, but you weren't introduced to Eckhart during your time in the order. Uh, so how were you introduced to him? Well, actually, it was reading um, uh, Kumar Swami's book. Kumar Swami is a Hindu, and he wrote a book in the 30s um, called The Transformation of Nature in Art. And there's a whole chapter in there on Eckhart. And I picked that up one day and I started to read it. And it scared me because I had just published an article that year on sacred space and sacred time. And there were whole sentences in Eckhart, whom I had not read, that were in my article. And I said, oh, this scared me. I really did. I put the book. I didn't finish the article. I put it on the shelf for three months. Then I tiptoed back to it. And, and I started to read it. And then I had another response. like, this is thrilling. I have a brother. I'm not alone. I'm not uh, crazy. And he's a Dominican brother, too. So then I really dove into him more. Then I had an operation because I had a, a bad back from an, a car accident. And during the operation, when I was under ether, whatever it is they put you under these days, that car came to me. And it was the most transcendent dream of my life. Mm. We walked together on the beach in silence. And um, I just knew after that dream that we had a rendezvous. <laughs> and wow. uh, so it just deepened my interest in him. And then I was writing a book on compassion. And I was becoming very frustrated that so few spiritual theologians in the Christian tradition had written about compassion. They're writing about contemplation all the time, but not compassion. And I was looking and looking. And finally, I found in Eckhart this major treatise. It's not just a sermon, although he wrote sermons. He wrote Sermons on Compassion, deliver them. But a major treatise on Luke 6, be you compassionate, create and have compassionate. You're just what I was looking for, real meat on these bones. So uh, that those were some of my conversion experiences early with Eckhart. And I became very, the more I read them, especially around the theme of compassion, and then went broader, uh, the more I, I realized I was in the presence of a major a major a heart and and mind uh, teller. And so we hung out from then on. <laughs> I've been oh. teaching him ever since, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what it was like to experience his presence in the dream and, and as your life has unfolded, have you continued to feel his presence in that way? Well, as I say, it was the most transcendent dream of my life. Mm. And it's interesting that it was in silence he was wearing a full Dominican habit. He had no face, which is very interesting. To me, that means he's every man. He's every person, every woman. He's, he's all of ours. But we're walk, walking along the beach of the ocean. And I think that's significant, too. For one thing, he, he wrote a beautiful, my favorite sermon of his. Whenever I would read it for years, I would cry. 
his sermon on compassion, where he, uh, among other things, talks about, uh, uh, he quotes John about um, how God is in us and we are in God. And so it's panentheism, but that we are in compassion and compassion is in us. Mm. And he ends it with this amazing passage where he says, we don't know what the human soul is. The human soul is as ineffable as God. We can't talk about the human soul anymore that can really talk about God. And he said, well, we can know a little bit about the soul, the work it does, when it goes out to work and all that. Ultimately, we can't know. But then he says, he ends the sermon with this one sentence. He says, the soul is where God works compassion. Amen. And I, my instincts to say everyone in the church fainted and he fainted too and fell off the pulpit. <laughs> he didn't know what he had just said, that we don't have a soul until we have compassion. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> that's a mouthful. Especially after he leads up to it by talking about our being in compassion and, and he talks about the, the, the waters, the deep waters of compassion. So that's, those are fetal images. And of course, the word compassion, both Hebrew and Arabic, comes from the word for womb. So the idea that in the womb, we're in compassion. And then we leave our mother's womb. And then the earth and the universe becomes another womb for us if we respond, if we grow up. That the whole world, really, the whole universe, creation itself, is our resting place and our... Um, yeah, our resting place. And he's a whole sermon on repose and, and resting and how all beings seek repose and so forth. And that's us too, that we need repose in our life. That's contemplation, isn't it? That's repose. Mm-hmm. Return to the to the waters. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. I had that experience too after Merton died, a dream with Merton. Same way, kind of a numinous dream. And it's interesting. Merton gave a talk once on God, does God seek us in our sleep? And uh so somehow the numinous quality of the dream is so uh, intimate to us. Uh, you know what I mean? It so kind of sets us on a course. And so I, I recall for me, Merton would mention Eckhart and the other mystics in his talks. And just then there was just one translation there by, at the time on Eckhart Blackney. What's his name? Uh, Blackney. And uh, I have to say, when I first read, unlike John of the Cross and so on, I didn't quite, I couldn't quite get what he was saying. It just seemed like elusive to me. But John of the Cross and the Cloud and the others, kind of Teresa. And then after, it was after I, I, I left the monastery, and then I read your breakthrough, the translations with the introduction. And then C.F. Kelly, Divine Knowledge of Meister Eckhart, and then Reiner Sherman. And so then he came to be very substantive for me over the years, giving retreats on Eckhart and reading him over and over and over again. He's so intimate and profound, just an amazing, amazing person for all of us, yeah. And so practical. I mean, yeah. uh, like his sermon on Martha and Mary, where he just flips the whole tradition and says, Mary was... a was the mature one. She could do two things at once. She could do the dishes in one room and listen to Christ in the next room. Mary had to be centered, focused entirely on Christ because she was immature. She, he says, he, he said, someday Mary will grow up to be as mature as Martha and be able to do two things at once. <laughs> also, it dawned on me later after I left that the reason he, he eluded me at first, 
He's so disarmingly immediate to the intimacy of her own experience about detachment. And when she's really talking about a, like a foundational stance of our subjectivity in the world, and he, he sheds a light on that. So he's like, he's elusive if you're thinking for some kind of pious light. And instead he's shining a light on how we get up in the morning, go to bed at night, and like experiential self-knowledge in the presence of God. So it was very helpful to me to see that, yeah. And just on that practical note, we have talked a lot in the podcast about the fact that Eckhart wasn't a cloistered monk, that he, he lived out in the world, he traveled through the world, and how that makes him a different kind of teacher for us. Jim, would you like to just share a little bit about that and then Matthew could respond? Yeah, this is my sense of it, having been in the cloister where I was introduced to it. Uh, you know, in the Catholic Church, most of these religious orders, including the Dominicans, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, it's a vowed life that takes some form of service to the world, the consecrated life of service to the world. But also have in the church are contemplative or cloistered orders. So Teresa of Avila was cloistered. Therese the Little Fluid was cloistered. Guigo II, a ladder to heaven, was cloistered. John of the Cross, a Carmelite priest, they had ministry, but when he got ordained, he was intending to join the Carthusians to become a hermit. Thomas Merton wanted to become a Carthusian, and the abbot stopped it, wrote to Rome and stopped it. And so what you have is this hidden contemplative life, and every aspect of the life is intended to nurture and foster this deepening communion with God or the deepening awareness of God's oneness with us, like an eschatological sign in the world, like God alone. And that through that hidden life of prayer, it touches the whole world. And so that life, I, for six years, it had a, had a very profound effect on me, really. It really so, it so, meant so much to me. And the talks I had with Merton about it, and, and the Bergen brothers used to come. They were reformers. They would, they would argue. They didn't quite agree with Merton. And we had, we had talks about that. It was, it was a lovely, mutual, reflective dialogue they had. But then when I left the monastery, I was out here. And I still wanted to live the contemplative way of life. And I realized it isn't necessary to live in a monastery, to live a deeply contemplative life of God's infinite communion with us and share it with others. And Eckhart was very influential in that because he found it in the world. You know, he, he was in the midst of the world uh, radiating this presence. So when I lead my retreats, when I give the retreats, like with Matthew too, the people come to the retreats are living in the world. And so he's a lovely mentor for how to bring this contemplative divinity of daily life into the details of our day, like that. And so that's how it affected me. I'd like to um, share just one quote he has about work. I put it in my book on the reinvention of work. I include a lot of mystics, East and West. But his statement is stunning. He says, the outward work can never be small if your inward work is great. And your outward work can never be great or good if your inward work is small or of little worth. Your inward work always includes in itself all size, all breadth, and all length. So I just think that's, I'm goosebumps right now. That's mm -hmm. a stunning example of his bringing the contemplative and the action together, you see. And, and of course, this is Dominican. That's the Dominican philosophy. Or, um, and it was a break. I mean, both Francis and Dominic, they were contemporaries in the 13th century, early 13th century, um, they broke consciously, deliberately with the monastic tradition because 
at that time, the monastic tradition was in bed uh, with the feudal system, and the feudal system was dying. And so a lot of monastic work was not, was not happening well, because there was a whole new generation and a larger population because Europe had warmed up um, because of shifts in the ocean. And then the serfs were being freed because it wasn't work in the feudal system for the young people. And so all of these young people fled to towns, which overnight became cities, or fled to cities, which overnight became big. And then the universities were invented at the end of the, the 12th century too. And so you didn't have to go to a monastery any longer for education. You'd go to the city. And the city was, was new and it was very young and they had communes, they had communal living. I mean, it was a very, very uh, exciting renaissance that was happening. And that's when Dominic and, and uh, Francis came along and said, hey, you can be a contemplative and not stay in the security of the monastery. We can do it while we're working with people, but living in community. And, um, and they borrowed, of course, some of the prayer methods from monastic traditions, such as the chanting of the Psalms and so forth. But uh, they also put a big emphasis on attending the new universities. And especially Dominic did that. So the way Aquinas put it was that it's important to share the gifts of your contemplation with others. And that was a little different from the big emphasis on being a, a full-time contemplative in the monastery. Not that the monasteries didn't serve. They certainly did. They, they kept agriculture alive and scholarship alive and so much more. But there was this new thing happening in the 12th and 13th century. And it was the idea, and it was considered very radical. I mean, many of the monks just responded with, with shock that Francis of Dominic uh, and their followers proposed that you can be a contemplative and um, be in the world. But uh, it's interesting that Jim has lived both, <laughs> both lives, so he can, he can give us a, an opinion on, on the possibility <laughs> of both. And, of course, as Jim knows, the contemplative life is not, without its shadow side either. Or, you know, that there are people who, we're all human beings, whether we're in a monastery, out of a monastery, or, or, <laughs> or half in and half out. And we all have our needs, and we can all make uh, mistakes. Yeah, I, my, my sense of it is uh, the cloistered life and life out here, in one sense, is very different. And you can also see how the spirit works in the church where a new epoch emerges and uh, universalizing the call to holiness and so on. And um, it's also true, I think, the hidden life is, is more of a rare charism. But if you're really living it, just like in the world, Thomas Merton once said, we should all get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. And uh, he said, you can't love and live on your own terms. And uh, so if you live the monastic life in the deepest sense, it unravels you. You know, I mean, just completely lays you bare and cry. If, but the trouble is, there's thousands of ways to hide in a monastery. And uh, it goes on all the time. And Merton saw that. Merton once said, life is 98% Mickey Mouse. And it doesn't help to relocate because you'll wait, you discover a Mickey Mouse waiting for you at the airport to show you to your new apartment. <laughs> he said, the key is to find the kernel of pure truth in, in every situation. And he found it as a monk. So I think we find it where we find, you know, we're called to find it where we're planted and be this contemplative in the midst of our situation. And Eckhart is so lovely about 
kind of universalizing the, trans, the divinization to the ground and then concretizing it in our situation. You know, he was in his situation, I'm in my situation. And so we're, it's just endless variations of this transformative process of call to, to God. Yeah, beautiful. And he was practical. I mean, he was a prior for eight years at Erfurt. He was a assistant provincial and had a travel to Bohemia several times. It's a pretty long way. And, you know, that he didn't go by airplane. <laughs> you know, he had to deal with personnel, with, with brothers, and, and, and running a, a monastery or a friary. And, of course, teaching and running uh, kind of some of the academic stuff and so forth. So, you know, he, he wasn't just in a, a cloistered circumstance. It was a both-and thing that he was doing and that is the ideal in the in Dominican trend. You know, the nuns at Strasbourg, I mean, the nuns, they recorded his, or done his talk. A lot of it, we have the talks, a lot of it we owe to them in terms of how they very faithfully wrote it down and, got, and the begins too. And I would just, I mean, you know, some of those nuns that must have been touched by that. I'd give anything to listen into the spiritual direction sessions where they would come one-on-one -on -one with Eckhart, you know, to have Eckhart for your spiritual director. Uh, in a way, he, he exudes it in his sermons because it goes right to your heart. And he had a wonderful sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, he would often say, he'd quote people saying, I don't understand a word you're preaching. Yeah. And he'd say, and neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he would say, you don't understand it. He said, but don't worry about it. It's okay. He was so like light, like a light touch to deep things. A light touch, yes. Uh -huh. In one of his most powerful sermons about the difference between the Godhead and God, he ends it by saying, don't worry about it. If none of you understood it, don't worry about it. I had to give this sermon, even if I had preached to a poor box. No one was in church. I would have given this sermon to preaching to the poor box. So I think that says a lot about the, let's say, the, the passion in him, but, but the artist in him, right. that he had to birth this. And, um, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. Reiner Sherman says, he says, the fact Eckhart's clothing is full of holes suggests to us the fire that consumed him. That conflict gives way to paradox and at last invites silence. And to me what that means is each of us is to live out of the fire in our own heart. Do I mean each of us has had that radicality of a kind of obediential fidelity to follow the light it's given to us to follow? He's a, Eckhart's so good that way, kind of modeling that for us, because he did it. And not without a price. I was going to say, he paid a price, yes. He did, he did. You've both shared uh, how he was such a support to women in his time, to the Beguines and to the nuns in Strasbourg. And uh, it's amazing that then they were the ones, after the church condemned him, to hold on to his work and probably the reason we have it today, so much of it today, the long game. <laughs> And, of course, he speaks to a lot of women today. I'll, I'll tell you one story that I had a student, and um, she was a therapist. It was a class in Eckhart. We were dealing with my little book, Meditations with Eckhart. And then one day in class, she spoke up, and she said, I have to tell you the story. She said, uh, I was sexually abused by my father. And she said, for years, I went to therapists, and ultimately, I became one. But she said, the deep healing did not happen until reading Eckhart. There is a difference between psychological healing 
and the healing that the mystics can bring. And it's not either or, but there's a, a dimension that Eckhart brought her, and I think that uh, mystics bring us and that our culture needs so badly, that is more cosmic, if you will. And, and that includes our, our souls, just like he was saying in that quote about work, that our psyche and our cosmos and the cosmos go together. And when we are abused, there's a rupture that happens in our soul, so to speak. And um, someone like Eckhart, I think, brings, brings the whole back again when we've been split into parts. And I think that's what this woman was saying. And um, she's kept in touch with me over the years because this has been such an important part of her work, but also of her, her healing that continues. That's amazing. Well, just building on that, Matthew and Jim, can you talk to us a little bit about how these teachings invite people in their own spiritual path, on their own spiritual path. How, how might these teachings impact us, guide us, um, carry us forward? Well, I want to tie it where this becomes spiritual direction or pastoral, you know, this very personal level, and we read Eckhart at that level. And I, I think one way that it touches people is we get so caught up in the demands of the day like we're being carried along by the momentum of the day's demands. We have this feeling that we're skimming over the surface of the depths of our own life, like that like we're suffering from depth deprivation. And we also sense that God's unexplainable oneness with us is hidden in the depths over which we're skimming. So the whole idea, can I slow down enough to catch up with myself or slow down enough to be present to myself? And that requires a certain intimate quality of detachment. I have to look at the idolatries or the thing, how can I set aside a rendezvous, a daily rendezvous with God, and then habituate it through the day to not absolutize the passing contingencies of impressions and so on, and sink the taproot of my heart into a deeper place. And it seems to me that everything Eckhart says is an invitation to that. Because you can't skim read Meister Eckhart. It's the one-liners that get you. He says it, and you have to stop. And so the pedagogy requires you to stop in a kind of a, kind of a patient, uh, and then you discover it's luminous. And the very way he's inviting you to follow him is accessing you, and you're dropping down to this deeper place with him, like that. And that's how I, to me, how, for me also as a psychotherapist, it's where spirituality touches healing, right? Like the depth dimension of the healing encounter, like Matthew was saying about this woman. Uh, I see that all the time with people. Well, that's beautifully put, and I, I'm certainly on board with it. What I derived from Eckhart was what I call the four paths of free spirituality, because traditionally we've been taught purgation, illumination, union, name the spiritual journey. But those ideas are essentially Greek. They come from Plotinus and Proclus, and then um, Dennis Ariapagite picked up on them. But in reading Eckhart, uh, I found, and it was the first time I ever wrote about Eckhart, was an article on the four paths in Eckhart. And it's the first time I ever wrote about the four paths. And what I find there is a different naming of the journey. One is via positiva, which is the path of awe, wonder, and joy. And delight. 
that ecstasy of that kind can open us up to this wanting. We have wanting experiences in nature and in love and in friendship and in many circumstances. That's the via positiva. The via negativa is two things. It's silence. It's that emptying and detachment and that dimension of contemplation. But it is also, of course, suffering and loss and grief coming apart. Huma Shodron says when, when things fall apart. And that happens. Chaos might be another word for it. Rupture might be another word for it. Then comes the via creativa, that creativity comes when you've been empty. And Eckhart has this great sharing. He says, I once had a dream. Though a man, I dreamt I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness. And out of this nothingness, God was born. So that's a tremendous naming of the passage from the via negativa, the emptying, whether it comes through suffering, which it often does, or whether it comes through silence. It's both emptying, it's both letting go and letting be. It's detachment, to use Jim's word. Eckhart invented two words, abgeschindenheit, which means to, I translate as let go, and gelassenheit, which I translate as let be. But however you translate it, detachment, let go, let be, that's the via neg- those are the lessons of the via negativa, whether it's about meditation or whether it's about suffering, through suffering, I should say. But the creativa is so big for Eckhart. You know, he once gave a Christmas sermon and said, what good is it to me? If Mary gave birth to the Son of God 1,400 years ago, and I don't give birth to the Son of God in my person, in my time, and in my culture, you see. We're all here to be mothers of God. So he didn't put Mary on a pedestal, which so often happens, but rather she's kind of the one who shows us the way. We're all here to birth the Christ. And as he said, God is always needing to be born. And then the fourth path is the via transformativa. And that gives us direction to our creativity. Because obviously our human creativity, which is the image of God in practice, is very powerful. But it can be demonic as well as divine. Because with our creativity, we make more hydrogen bombs or we destroy forests in a day that God in nature 10,000 years to create and all these other things we do with our creativity. So creativity needs steering. And that's the fourth path. That's where compassion comes in and that's where justice comes in. And Eckhart actually says this. He says, compassion means justice. It's a quote. So he unites the prophetic tradition of Israel with the other traditions of the world about compassion. But also he says, and this is an amazing statement from a mystic like him. He says, the person who understands what I say about justice understands everything I have to say. That is just stunning. And that really, it feeds right into liberation theology and other efforts in the, in the late 20th century and onwards to push justice to the front of the line whether we're talking economic justice, gender justice, racial justice, and and social justice. And so that's what I've been teaching a lot um, uh, over the years with with real profound and exciting results from people. And I I thank Eckhart for all of that. And I I, I thank him for myself because these four paths helped to name my journey as well. And... um, they're open-ended, you know, I call it an open-ended spiral. It's not climbing a ladder. It's an open-ended spiral, and of course, you you go back. So the via transformativa, bringing justice, is about bringing more people to the table for the via positiva. So more people can get the, the, the depths and the joy of life 
and, and then go on through the other paths. So, and as Eckhart says, um, breakthrough does not happen once a year, once a month, once a week, or once a day, but many times every day. And breakthrough for him is what wanting is for Julian. It's, he says, in breakthrough, I learned that God and I are one. Beautiful, thank you for sharing that, Matthew. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I think also through Eckhart Way, I guess any teacher teaching, we each have to find our own way to word the word of Eckhart that touched us, you know, so it carries over to carry it over. And this way I put it too is with Eckhart, all the mystics really, if you look close, the seminal passages is uh, what Eckhart is telling us is to find that act, find that person, find that community, find that form of service or creativity which when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self and strangely brings you home to yourself near your origin. And I think that so much to me is a way of articulating what he's inviting us to, uh, to do in the midst of our situation. And regardless of the situation, we're married, it's the depths, the potential in marriage. If you're a parent, if you're widowed, if you're old, if you have a terminal illness, if you're teaching a kindergarten class, what does it mean to be a contemplative politician? What does it mean to be a contemplative attorney? What does it mean to really invest the whole of oneself in this fulfilling way? And I think Eckhart's a good uh, patron saint for that way of life, which is really Christ's life. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of his teachings that I have fun with because it's an invitation to play, I think, is his teaching um, to work without a why, you know, and to love without a why. One day I was, I, it was a Sunday, I remember, and I went swimming in a, in a lake near where I live, north of Chicago, uh, with two friends. So there were three of us. And five minutes into the swim, one of my friends lost his teeth, went down to the bottom of the brown lake. The three of us spent an hour diving for those teeth. We never found them. And I noticed when we got out of the water, I wasn't my usual self after going swimming on a hot August day. I, I, was, I didn't feel relaxed and so forth. And then I realized we had introduced a why. Instead of just going swimming to swim, we had gone swimming and then had a purpose at which we failed. <laughs> well, the next day I had to teach Eckhart in the summer program. And sure enough, on the and we're using that little book that you know, 
And in the reading was that passage to live without a why and work without a why and love without a why. So I, we never found the teeth, but I found the, the, the truth of that insight of Eckhart that, uh, we, and of course, living in a capitalist culture, everything tends to be for a why, for a purpose. And, um, as, as Jim said earlier, we're so busy doing what? <laughs> and, uh, but Eckhart just really shot, shot, shoots through all that when he says that uh, there is this other dimension to being and to living and to working and to loving. And that is just do it for its own sake. As he says, you do justice to do justice, to live, to live. And uh, that is the, the wonderful, I think, fuller mystical uh, view of the world and of our, our work. And it does say something about excessive busyness. I want to add to that also something is when I was in the monastery, I had a chance to study medieval philosophy under Dan Walsh, Bonaventure and Scotus. And, and I was introduced to the thought of Martin Heidegger, the phenomenology of Heidegger. He had a deep respect for Eckhart, called him the master of language, and also the turning of Meister Eckhart toward the end, the, the end of searching for foundations and so on. So here's a, here's a lovely quote from Heidegger, and Sherman has it in the front piece of his book in German and then in English. And Heidegger is so Eckhartian, he says, Heidegger says, what seems easier than to let a being be just the being that it is? Or does this turn out to be the most difficult of task? Particularly, if such a project, to let a being be as it is, represents the opposite of the indifference, it simply turns its back upon the being itself. We must turn toward the being. Think about it with regards to its being. By such a thinking, at the same time, let it rest upon its own unique way to be. So there's a deep kind of nonviolence in Eckhart. Instead of moving in to impose oneself and fabricate and change it, to first ponder, like respect and reverence, the mystery of ourselves and of all things, and then creatively work with that. And that's very different than a capitalistic kind of marketing, structuring kind of manipulation of things. It's about reverence, as you say, and receptivity. Yeah, exactly. And it's very Taoist. I went years ago, I lectured at a college and it's actually Lutheran College in California. And um, I certainly brought Eckhart in and stuff. And when I finished, there was a note in my lectern saying, please come to my office. And it was turned out to be one of the professors who was head of the political science department, but he was from China and he was Taoist. And he told me that um, every weekend he goes to a different church or synagogue around the area to hear if there's any Taoism being taught in America. <laughs> and he said to me, that talk you gave is the first Taoist talk I've heard since I've come to America. And I said, well, it was Meister Eckhart. That was one of my first awakenings that it's not just the West that, uh, that Eckhart brings with him, but he is bringing, obviously he brings Hinduism because uh, Kumar Swami actually says that hearing Eckhart is like listening to Sanskrit. And he says that it's like reading the Upanishads. And for a Hindu, which Kumaswami is, and by the way, he was fluent in 36 languages, Kumaswami was, 36 languages. Wow. But he loved Eckhart. And he said that um, reading Eckhart is like reading the Upanishads. I mean, that's the ultimate compliment from a Hindu. But again, Eckhart is applicable to so many of the deepest truths because he goes so deep. He never read Taoism. He never read Buddhism. but 
I have a chapter in my book on Eckhart and Thich Nhat Hanh. And there are absolutely parallel teachings in, in both. Eckhart, so many things that Buddhism talks about, um, Eckhart talks about, including his stunning phrase, I pray God to rid me of God. That, um, you know, we can cling, we have to be detached sometimes even from God, and we can cling to our own versions of what God is, you know, and that's where where a lot of religious wars come from. You know, an ecumenist of, of so much depth, because it's not that he he was exposed to these traditions, but he went so deep into his own soul and into his own Christian tradition that he found the um, the common ground. You know, I want to pick up on this what you're saying because it's had a big effect on me. You know, if I look at the, the table of contents of your Meister Eckhart, a warrior mystic for our time, and you go down the list of people in this encounter of Eckhart, and the people you mentioned there are all people who also came to Gethsemane to talk to Merton. So Thich Nhat Hanh came there to talk to Merton. You mentioned this meeting. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Jewish mystic and philosopher, came there to, to visit with Merton. John Wu, the Taoist from China, came there and gave a talk, and he translated the New Testament into Chinese. And the opening set lines of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, he translated, in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God. And so Merton said, the world will not survive religion based on tribal consciousness, but those who go to the very depths of their own tradition, they converge and recognize each other. And if they bear witness, religious faith could be a unitive force in the world. Like that. He said, that's a great scandal of the church. It doesn't teach its own mystical heritage. You know, people are leaving because the soul knows where it needs to go trying to find it. And uh, so Eckhart is a great, you know, the depth and beauty of Eckhart bears witness to the depth and beauty of this. And he would see it, like you say, in his day, he didn't have the opportunity. But certainly had he had the opportunity, he would immediately resonated with these. He would have seen the underlying unity in these different dialects, these different languages of the ineffable. Yeah. And when I wrote Merton and asked him where to go to study spirituality, he told me to go to Paris. Um, he said that to me in his letter back to me. He said that, you know, people are taking, this is late 60s, people are taking LSD and everything to have mystical trips. He said, and the church is ignoring you know, not talking about it at all. So I'm very glad to hear that you're going on to study spirituality, etc. So um, I couldn't agree more. And I'll always, like you, I'll always be grateful to Merton. And like you, I read him as a teenager, his seven-story mountain. I think that concept of living without a why is just very confusing and hard to grasp. I think especially with the way we so so long for purpose and meaning in our lives, you know, as human beings. So I'd love to hear from each of you, how, has that, how does that apply to you and the work that you do in your life right now, that living without a why? Like so much else, I think, in paradox, it's both and. Obviously, we have to live for wise. We have to pay our bills and keep the roof over the head, et cetera, mm-hmm. care for one another. But, but there's this other dimension. We have to, at times, live, love, and work without a why, which, again, means to me a purpose this lead. So contemplation, I think, by definition, is not for a why. It's not mm. for a purpose. It's to learn to be with being and, and solitude, emptying for the sake of emptying. And again, play. 
I think, you know, kids play to play, right? Mm. That's what we have to call them in for dinner. And, um, and that's a wonderful thing because time goes out the door. I've already said to my students, when you can say, where has the time gone? You've just had a mystical experience because um, you're, you're beyond the everyday world of time and, and even place. And there's a wonderful uh, French philosopher who, who died quite recently, um, Gaston Bachelard, and he talks about um, what I call the three eyes. I think it's a wonderful taking apart of a mystical experience. And that's so special because it's hard to talk about mysticism, but they would take it apart is even neater. Three eyes. One is immensity. The other is intensity. And the other is intimacy. Mm. And he says that we humans, we have these experiences of immensity where we feel connected to the universe, for example. And we have experiences of intensity. And we know we have them because we remember them. The intense experience are the memorable experiences. But to me, what wraps it up is the intimacy. In spite of the fact that it's immense, that we connect to the universe, and that it's intense, it is also intimate. And he, he, he's so poetic when he talks about these things. But he talks about how we go beyond the, the now and the, and the place mm-hmm. into uh, a bigger place. And I think it's, it's, you know, he doesn't use the word mysticism, but I think that it's a marvelous naming of what happens in a mystical experience. Immensity, intensity, and intimacy. Yeah, for me, uh, Dan Walsh, I think it's from Dan Philosophy and Dun Scotus, uh, that the love of creation is in a sense greater than the love of redemption. Because the love of redemption had a why. The love of creation had no why. And the word I use for it is the anarchy of the ineffable. See? Because in the ground, there's no intentionality in the ground. See? And we're rising without a why. And the welling up of the ground is pregnant with the Trinity. The Ebolatio flows over as the universe, as life. And to me, what it is to me, it's this, is that um, in moments of mystical awakening, like quickening, or moments of deep intimacy, but also moments of where you're immersed in trauma, the reflective you that has reasons falls apart. You know, I mean, you're just left bare and empty-handed in the immediacy of something. That's what I think solitude is, too, that we're less and less able to explain to anybody, including ourselves, what's happening to us. And that anarchy at the center, the God's the infinity, of that unfolding, in, incarnate infinity intimately realized. But as soon as you have a why, there's a kind of a, a attachment in that the why you choose are all the other whys you didn't choose. But if you're infinitely open and let things flow and come to you like the Tao, it's, it's not getting uh, like fixated on, it's like a wayless way rather than fixated on a way. So anyway, those are some of the things that touch me see a lot, like, poetically, but also my deep experiences, people in therapy where they share these moments with me where they're awakened. It's really the the reflective self that had a why is all of a sudden transcended. And it's a boundary like T.S. Eliot, the axis of the turning of the still point of the turning world. You're left empty handed without a why. It's an overflowing fullness that washes over you. And you experience it as homecoming. You know, you feel this 
and, and that, then that permeates our whys as the intention to elicit that depth that's in every intention, hopefully, which is the market, which is love, I guess. I don't get closed in. Those are some things that come to me. Both of those so helpful, helping that concept that can be confusing becoming much, much clearer. Thank you. love interviews with poets or Mary Oliver, people, poets or philosophers, or, or someone who's like deeply in love like this. And you, you ask them to try to find words that could adequately explain what they live by. And they're empty handed. Do I mean there's like a, I don't know from whence it comes. You know, I, I yield to it and it flows through me or it grants itself to me. But the price I pay for it is nothing less than everything. I lay down myself this flowing that it's almost what my it's whole life is. A... Yeah, it is. You know, Aquinas says the same spirit that hovered over creation at the beginning hovers over the mind of the artist at work. Yeah. I just love that because it, it marries the, the creativity of the universe with our own creativity. It's, it is co-creating. We, we participate in the same work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it. You know, I, I heard uh, Mary Oliver speak uh, shortly before she died. She came to San Francisco and filled a theater, packed it in. And when she finished her talk, she said, uh, now I want to speak to the young people here. And I wanted, I'm 84 years old. I want to tell you everything I've learned about life. Three things I've learned. First, pay attention. Hmm. Second, be astonished. Third, Share your astonishment. Mm. That's everything I've learned about life. The rest is all details. <laughs> <laughs> In the interview she did with Krista Tippett just before she died on being, she, Krista Tippett drew out this poem, or Mary Oliver says it's a poem where she, she was burdened with things and she went down to the coastline, the waves crashing on the beach, and she poured out all her problems to the ocean, all these waves. And the ocean said, Pardon me, I have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> I like that <laughs> yeah, beautiful just to close this wonderful conversation that we've had today I just wanted to ask you about uh, Eckhart's approach to prayer and so I have a quote um, Matthew this is a quote from your book whoever seeks God in a special way gets the way but misses God who lies hidden in it but whoever seeks God without any special way gets him or gets God as he is in himself. And that person lives with the sun and is life itself. Could you just comment on, on how we might take Eckhart's way of being forward today? Well, I think Eckhart is saying we can get attached to anything, including our modes of prayer. To remain open to that phrase that, um, that Jim just shared about um, being open, that the spirit is always present and approaching us and often through surprise ways. You know, we meet a new person, have a conversation, uh, and just so many ways, reading a book, meditating on our pets and with them. So, I mean, I think what he's saying radically is stay open. And, and there is a danger of being so attached to our methods. And another teaching, and similar, he talks about how some people Sometimes if you're attached to your methods, it's like wrapping God up in a blanket and putting God under your bench or under your pew. So for him, there is this radical openness 
that um, is essential. And I think that statement of his is very Dominican and is what we began our conversation with. When you're in the world, anything can, can happen, you know, and it doesn't mean you have to flee back to your cell. And he says, once you've learned to let go and let be, you are always in the right place at the right time. Whether mm-hmm. you're in the market, a lot of people and noise, or whether you're in uh, a monastic cell or any place in between. And, he, and here's one more example. He says, a person worked in a stable. He had breakthrough. What did he do? He went back to the stable. Right. So the gift of, of contemplation and the gift of communion and presence is something that doesn't have to change the outside of our life. It changes us on the inside, and we just bring that breakthrough to whatever we're called to do. There's these uh, letters of Plato, and in one of the letters, Plato says, uh, as regard to my essential teaching, I have never written it down, and never will. It's handed on from master to student in a face-to-face encounter, and a fire catches hold in the heart of the student like this. And Chaco Trumpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan master, he said that that the artist needs to learn the discipline of art, perspective. But the art begins when when it breaks open. John Cage says the artist doesn't begin in earnest till they no longer know what they're doing. And so I think prayers like that too. You look at the mystics, what they're really concerned about. All these mystics, they're looking at this tipping point. We have to start out some way with an understanding. We need to get place to get our balance. So, but they all talk about discerning this tipping point where like Teresa in the fourth mansion, where you realize your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions, where John the Car starts talking about a, finding God in a passage through a dark night, or through they each have their own metaphor. And I think this metaphor of letting go uh, of all ways is a wayless way that pours out in every way and incarnates it in every way, as long as you're not attached to any of them. And that doesn't mean you don't have a way. It just means it's an open-ended way that's woven and is harmonious with all these ways. That we walk our way is given to us and, and it shifts and changes. So that's my sense of it. Because there's always a method. You know, like therapy has a method, or writing a book has a method. But when it's real, it's a method in the service of the breaking through of something that can't be methodized. You know, it's not reducible because you can tell when it is a method. It has the feeling of a method. You know, it has that feeling to it. But when it's art or love, it has this luminous quality to it. And God's the infinity of that luminosity, I think Eckhart would say. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's felt like a very luminous conversation today. And what a gift to bring the two of you together to talk about uh, Eckhart and a little bit about Merton and your common experience with his contemplative, gifted and um, kind, compassionate personality as well. And I want to say one again, Kirsten, thank you for your skillful mentoring of this and letting it flow. But Matthew, I'm so blessed by our dialogue. I'm so grateful that you joined us like this. I'm so, I'm so touched by it and the resonance with. So anyway, it was beautiful. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you. I assure you it's mutual. And I thank you. It's a joy to meet you, especially having read more of your own story in your most recent and courageous book. And I too thank you, Kirsten, for, uh, for mediating and uh, being the leader in this process. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.